You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. This morning's scripture reading is John 21, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 25. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of, the, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the word itself could not, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Sarah. 
in January of 2012, I had the privilege of going on a tour of Israel and got to see a lot of cool places, uh, Jerusalem and Jericho, uh, Har Megiddo, Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. Got to see uh, a lot of cool places, got to go where um, some of the places where Jesus walked and did many things. And um, I, I would say that seeing that Bible Lands tour was pretty cool because it brought some some reality to some of the, um, the, the stories that we read in the Bible, uh, but I found it in many ways kind of largely disappointing in the fact that it's just dirt and grass and rock, <laughs> that God's not more present there than he is anywhere else, and yet it is cool to see these things, these stories that I've known playing out in history, and I would say that my favorite place um, that I went to that probably had the most meaning for me was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. And uh, there is this, um, this church that's there at the historic site where Jesus restores Peter. Um, at least that's kind of where, um, where, um, where the legend is, is that that happened. Nobody really knows. But there's these heart-shaped rocks along the beach and this little like kind of uh, chapel that you, can, uh, that you can spend some time praying in. And maybe it was because it just wasn't overly, overly touristy or, or gaudy or whatever. But I had a few opportunities. I had an opportunity to go off kind of by myself on the Sea of Galilee and sit there. And just kind of look out over the waves and reflect on this story. And um, it was so meaningful to me uh, to think about the fact that Jesus restores failures. Peter betrayed Jesus quite terribly back in John chapter 18. Him on the Sea of Galilee. And this moment, this sweet moment in John chapter 21 where Jesus restores the failure, restores Peter. Has always been such a special thing to me because so much of the time I feel like a failure. Uh, So many of the times I am a failure. And the reality of this story just stirs my heart to to remind me of what kind of Jesus I'm following, what he really expects of me, and and who he is for me. And so uh, this is a sweet passage for me. I think I've spent as much time studying this passage as I have any passage. I almost forgot I had a sermon to prep. So I don't know if this is a well-crafted sermon. I just kind of got lost in the wonder of this passage, and it was kind of medicine for my own soul. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us here as we enter into this, uh, one of my favorite chapters. God, we do come before you, and we acknowledge that, that we do not measure up to your standard. Heck, we don't even measure up to our own standards. And so, Lord, I pray that um, as we see you tend to your disciples, and particular to, particularly to Peter here, Lord, that we would see what you did with him, what you called him to, Um, And see that and then realize that you're that same Savior today who is still calling and restoring um, failures. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, speak uh, with these words directly to our souls and that we might see and hear you clearly and that we might follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we, we saw what looks like John's conclusion at the end of chapter 20. He says these words, Um, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, which seems like a wonderful place to end his book. Um, But there is a chapter 21, which is kind of interesting. It's almost like um, it's a a bonus chapter. It's almost like it's this um, extra piece of scripture that I think... John may uh, have completed his gospel in chapter 20 and then, maybe responding to some questions, added this chapter in 
um, either on the spot when he was writing it or maybe just a little bit later. But John is clearly the writer here. And I don't know, like you go to the movie theater, right? And you sit through this awesome epic movie and you get to the end and the credits begin to roll, but you don't get up, do you? You wait because you know that there's that post-credit movie scene, right? You're waiting for it. You're anticipating it. And what it does is that post-credit scene either resolves some sort of story that there wasn't an answer to, some storyline that didn't get wrapped in the movie gets wrapped up in the post-credits, or it teases you for what's coming next, right? Back in 2004, the, uh, maybe one of the greatest movies ever made, Napoleon Dynamite, came out. Anybody seen Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah, <laughs> back there. Anyone that works in youth ministry knows that movie tremendously well. It's this really awkward, kind of cheap movie that, uh, about these awkward teenagers, and it became kind of a cult following. And if you were in youth ministry back in the 2000s, it really kind of, it really kind of became this uh, kind of cult following, and we, we would do youth events where we would make tater tots and all this stuff. It's this awkward family, but um, these nerds that are making their way through high school and all these different things, and it resolves so nicely at the end. But um, Napoleon's older brother, 32-year-old Kip, uh, has this online relationship with LaFonda, and they finally meet, if you know the story, and, uh, and then it kind of just fades into the background, and you're like, well, what happens to Kip and LaFonda? What happens to them? And so you get to the end of the movie and there's this bonus scene where there's this super awkward wedding and all this stuff that comes up. And it's really, I think, kind of a creative way to end the movie. But this idea of going, there was this unresolved question, this unresolved issue that then's resolved in the post-credits. And this chapter 21 kind of feels that way. I think there's a couple issues that John wants to resolve in this, in this section of Scripture. He's, in a sense, kind of made his argument... He's made his pitch, he's given his closing argument, and now that we have this chapter, which I think is to resolve some questions here. So here's some questions that we might have. It's like, well, what, what happened to Peter? We know from history, you know, that the writers uh, or the, 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 those who had believed in the gospel know that Peter kind of gets back into the apostle thing, but we know that he rejected Jesus. So how did we get from point A to point B? How did we get to where Peter totally failed Jesus to now on the day of Pentecost becoming this preacher of the gospel. How did he get back in? I think is one issue that, G, that uh, John wants to tell the story about. How did Peter get back into the apostle thing? And then towards the end of the chapter, we see that John addresses a, a, a misunderstanding of scripture where, um, where we have this belief that will John live forever? So you kind of see there it is. The two issues to resolve, I think, in this chapter is how did Peter get back into the apostle thing if he abandoned them, abandoned Jesus, betrayed him, and will John live forever? Because of some misunderstandings about the story here, there had become this legend that maybe Jesus, uh, either, either Jesus would come back before John died or John would live uh, a supernaturally long life. Well, the answer to both of those, just to help you out, is that the reason Peter gets back into the apostle thing is that Jesus restores him. Jesus restores him back into the ministry. And will John live forever? No. <laughs> Sermon over. No, not yet. <laughs> What I want to do is I want to walk through, here's what I want to do. I want to walk through, I don't know why you laughed. Oh, that's, that's, okay. um, I want to do, I just want to walk you through the passage. I want to do a walking tour of John chapter 21. I just want to walk through with you and point out things. So like we're walking through the forest, we're walking through the zoo, and I'm going to be kind of your tour guide pointing out details in the narrative. So I just want us to feel the flow of the text. And then what I want us to do is then I want to lay out for you, I then want to lay out for you how Jesus restores failures. I want to kind of interpret it for us, and then we'll have a couple applications at the end. So just so you kind of know what we're doing. So let's just walk through the text together. It'll be helpful if you have it in front of you. 
There are some Bibles under some of the chairs there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, open it up. It will be helpful to to see it with your own eyeballs. And so let's start here. John chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's made some appearance to the disciples. And, And now we have, they're all in Galilee, and Jesus is going to interact with them on the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, um, chapter, or verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and re- he revealed himself in this way. So again, this is coming off of John twenty thirty one. This life in his name, this feels like the end, but then he makes this transition statement here of going, Jesus is going to reveal himself one more time. Let me tell you one more story to finish my gospel. And uh, one, it's this... Um, Uh, They meet in Galilee. So this is way up in the north. The other appearances were down in Jerusalem, but this is up in Galilee. And so some have wondered, does this mean that the disciples have kind of given up and decided to go back to fishing? And I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Matthew records in verses 7 and 8 that the risen Jesus told told, um, the women who saw him at the tomb to go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see, we, see me. Mark sixteen seven. Go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So they did not go back to fishing. They did not go back to Galilee because they gave up on the Jesus thing. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he told them he was going to meet them there. So they're back in their home area, and they are just waiting for the next thing. They're doing what Jesus has told them and they're waiting for Jesus to appear to them and give them more instructions. Look at verses 2 and 3. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Some have speculated that maybe Peter has decided he's going to go back to the fishing business and give up on the following Jesus thing. I don't think that's what's happening. Like we just talked about before, they're waiting for Jesus to come. I think Peter's just trying to be productive with his time. He announces that he's going fishing, which means if that's your, your vocation, you don't announce that. Like, if I am going to go fishing today. No, he's doing this because he's waiting for Jesus to come and meet them. And he's going to go and he's going to pass the time productively. So this is not a... I don't think that this is Peter resigning himself back to being a fisherman, that he's blown it. No, I think what he's, done, what he's doing here is he's trying to be productive with his time. And the reality is, is that the other disciples go with him. The other disciples, even John, John didn't abandon Jesus, yet he goes fishing as well. So I don't think that this means that Peter has somehow given up on following Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and I also think it's interesting here that they're back and they're fishing, which means that following Jesus didn't really improve their social standing at all. <laughs> They're still on the Sea of Galilee. They don't have any sort of special standing. Following Jesus didn't get them ahead in the world's systems. Three and a half years, even a resurrected Messiah, and they still have to fish for their own lunch, right? Which kind of strikes at the idea of the prosperity gospel, which means if you follow Jesus, you'll be, you'll be blessed materially. Well, that's not the case for these disciples. They've followed Jesus for a long time. He's even risen from the dead, and they still have to go catch their own lunch, right? There was no... Um, There was no prosperity gospel kind of here at all. Verses 4 through 6, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? The word there is is technology, tiny children, little children. So Jesus from from the shore, and I think probably the reason they can't 
recognize him as it's still early in the morning. It's dark. He's just sort of this shadowy figure. They've been fishing all night. They're busy. And so they can't recognize Jesus. He's just far enough off. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. He said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul in because of the quantity of fish. These are professional fishermen that have been fishing all night. And they haven't caught anything. So this idea that some guy who calls them children on the, goes, you know what, maybe try the other side of the boat. Maybe three feet over will do it. But they do it. And it's fascinating to me, isn't it, that, that John 15.5 is kind of, kind of applies here. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> isn't that fascinating? Even without Jesus, they don't fish very well, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing, not even fish. And what we have here is we have kind of a deja vu moment. In Luke 5, we have the recording of Jesus' first encounter um, of calling Peter. And let me just read this account to you and see if you don't see some parallels here. That Jesus is, this is kind of a deja vu moment. Jesus is recalling his disciples again, Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, this is earlier in his ministry, so fast forward, I guess rewind, that would be the opposite of fast forward. Rewind in your mind, earlier in Jesus' ministry, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, same place. And he saw two boats on the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but at your word, we will let down the nets. So this thing has happened before, right? They've toiled all night, didn't catch anything. And then this guy, this guy who teaches, teaches people things, um, uh, tells them to let their nets down again. Um, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, at Jesus' knees, saying, "Depart from me, for I am a sinful man." He immediately felt like he was in the presence of a deity, and his sinfulness was his primary concern—not the sinking boat, but his, him being in the presence of someone so holy and powerful. Peter bows down before him and acknowledges his sin before him, and he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with John. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You will, not, you will go from being fishers of fish to fishers of men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, including that massive catch of, catch of fish. Imagine how much money that was. Left it immediately. Left everything and followed him. Left their father, left the family business. And now look at where they're at. Three and a half years later, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They're out fishing. And Jesus says, let down your nets. And their boat is filled with fish again. Jesus is calling them again. He is drawing them to himself again. Look at verses 7 and 8. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. It's like, I've seen this before. <laughs> I remember. Don't you remember? Last time we did this whole fish thing and our boats were filled. Don't you remember? That was Jesus. I, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his armor, armor, outer garment, 
for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the, full, the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So G- John, John is the one here, the one whom Jesus loved, that John's referring to himself. He doesn't name himself in the gospel because he doesn't want to be the focus of the gospel. He wants Jesus to be the focus of the gospel, so he doesn't even name himself. But here, he is the first one to see and understand Jesus, but Peter's the first one to respond to him, which is such, so typical of their relationship. John seems to kind of have this, he seems to kind of put things together. Peter seems to be a man of action. Peter puts out his outer garment and, uh, and, and then swims to the shore. Verses 9 through 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Remember that. That's, that's important. Charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it. Jesus already had his own fish. <laughs> so they're bringing a whole bunch of fish and Jesus already had some. Um, the charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were, men, there were so many, the net was not torn. That's different than in Luke chapter 5. Their nets were tearing. Now they weren't. Jesus had supernaturally strengthened the nets even in this moment. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So notice that charcoal fire. Do you remember where we've seen charcoal fire before? John chapter 18. These are the only two times we see a charcoal fire in all of Scripture. John John chapter 18, I think it's verse... 18, Jesus is being led to trial, and Peter's following at a distance. John 18, 18, actually in 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Charcoal fire. Peter had denied Jesus around a charcoal fire. And now Jesus is recreating a charcoal fire. He's kind of going to Peter's most disappointing moment, isn't he? He's going to press into the hard place. But he's doing it with grace. He's doing it with grace. He's inviting him in to deal, to deal with his failure. Look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 21 there. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish on it and bread. Where have we seen fish and loaves before? Jesus fed the 5,000, and now he's tending to his people. He's, he's got his own fish and bread this time. He's like, you know, the little boy brought the fish and the loaves. Jesus brought his own fish and loaves to feed his dear disciples. Jesus already had what he needed. He doesn't need them to provide anything in this equation, yet he's kind enough to take their feeble offerings, which he provided them, and incorporate them into the breakfast. Isn't that amazing? 
Jesus doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our good works. He doesn't need our religion. He doesn't need our great ideas. He doesn't need our phenomenal character and our great ideas. He doesn't need any of that. He provides all of it, and yet he is kind enough to go, the fish that I supernaturally provided you, yeah, you can contribute those as well. It's like you giving your kid money to buy you a Christmas present, right? Yes, you get to be an agent in this too. You get to contribute. It's all my grace. It's all my grace that you get to have fellowship with me. I've provided the grace, and I've also given you the grace that you can then contribute into this, right? It's not adding to the work of our salvation, but it's kind that God would use us as part of his kingdom. Let us offer him some things, even though it's him that gave them to us in the first place. Isn't that kind of Jesus? That he comes with full provision and lets us participate as well. Look at verse 11. Peter hauls in the net full of 153 fish. This means Peter is legit strong. He just swam 100 yards, and now he is pulling the net. It it says, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. It says Peter did this. Peter is legit strong. He is strong and self-reliant. He is independent. He can do this himself. We've seen that in Peter's life to this point, haven't we? In Matthew 16, Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I might be willing to forgive seven times because I'm a strong, independent man. Like, I can forgive. Like, how about 77 times is what Jesus says. Oh, crushing Peter's strength. Matthew 18, Peter came up and said, Lord, oh, that's the same, same passage, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Um, John chapter 13, verse 8, Peter says, You shall never wash my feet, Lord. I'm good. I don't need your service. I'm good. And Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. In John 13, also a little couple verses later, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I can follow you. I'm a strong, independent man. I can do this. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? You're not nearly as strong as you think you are, Peter. You're not nearly as independent as you think you are. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, and you have denied me three times. Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Your faith will fail, but I've prayed for you. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you've denied me three times that you know me. Matthew 26, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And in John 18, 10 through 11, remember Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and the the soldiers are coming to arrest him. And what does Peter do? Peter can pull a net full of fish in by himself, right? So he pulls out the sword. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. He's going to take on this entire army. And he cut off the right ear of Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So do you see this in this Peter? Peter has this, he, he, he feels like he is strong enough to do things. And 
And you even see that kind of demonstrated as like, in some ways he can. He can do a lot in his own strength. But we'll soon see that you cannot have that mindset and follow Jesus. You can't have a self-reliant, independent attitude and follow Jesus. Jesus is crushing that, has been crushing that in Peter. That disposition to think that I can do this myself. Jesus is crushing that. And you see, Peter really does have tremendous strength. Some have taken this whole 153 number of fish and really played like weird games with it. I don't know if you've heard any of that. Some have, some have theorized that, you know, you know, if you add numbers 1 to 17, add up each of those, it adds up to 153. I don't know what that means, but they just find that, they just think that's fun to try to find Bible codes or something. Some have thought that, um, some have noted that 153 is the added numeric value of the Greek words Peter and fish. Like if you turn those two words into numbers, they somehow match up to 153. Some people have tried to find this Bible code and said in Hebrew terms, Simon Iona is equivalent to 118 plus 35, i.e. 153. Uh, Some have thought that 100 stood for the Gentiles, 50 stood for Israel, and 3 stood for the Trinity. People have tried to find all these kind of different meanings in 153. Here's what I think it means. There was a lot of fish in the net. There's a lot of fish in the net. I think that's all it means. It, John's a fisherman, and he's going, 153 fish in one, net, in, in one pull of the net? That's insane. He's just showing the, the, the power of the miracle. When, when there is the discussion of the man who's been blind for 40 years, when there's the person who's been lame, it's not, there's not some secret little Bible code in that. It's just showing you that when Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed a lot of people, Right? So there is a temptation among some to try to find all these like secret little Bible codes. Reject that. Like, <laughs> just let the Bible tell you what it says. And right here, 153 fish just means that John's like, hey, this is a legit miracle. And the idea that he would remember that detail shows you that he's an eyewitness. This is eyewitness account. This is not some legend. This is eyewitness account. John is remembering details that stuck out to him. If this was made up 100 or 200 years later, this kind of detail would not be here. But John was there and he remembers and he's given you the detailed eyewitness account of going, I even remember how many fish were there. There's 153 of like the big ones, not the little ones, the big fish. And look at verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So now Jesus is going to press in with these words. He's going to press into the heart of Peter. He's going to go to the painful place, right? They've been sitting there kind of quietly Wondering what's going on, elephant of the room, like, hey, you kind of betrayed him, right? And now he's, you know, like, how's this going to work out? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to them, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So this is a personal private exchange between Jesus and Peter. And it seems to be matching up with Peter's three denials. It seems to be that Jesus is going to the place of each and every one of those denials and he is challenging and restoring Peter. He's going to the painful place. Even Peter is grieved that we're back at this point here. And Jesus is like, no, we need to do this hard work. We need to do this heart work. I need, 
I, I need to do this for you. You need me to do this for you. And he calls him to himself. He doesn't call him to say he's sorry or try harder. No, he goes for the heart. Peter, do you love me? He's going for the heart. He's not as interested in Peter's behavior as he is in Peter's heart. And then, when Peter is acknowledging, yes, Jesus, I do love you, then, out of a heart of love for Jesus, here's what I want your life to look like. Feed the sheep. Don't feed the sheep in order to prove that you love me. Feed the sheep because you love me. Because, the root and fruit. The fruit is that you'll do these things. The root is that you love me. The root is that you love me. So he goes for the heart, not the behavior. He doesn't try to make Peter feel worse about things. Peter feels worse enough as it is. He's going to the heart. He's dealing with the issue. And he wants Peter's affections. He wants Peter's allegiances, not just his good behavior or him feeling guilty. Right? He wants, Jesus, he wants Peter's heart. So Jesus actually uses the word agape, the first two questions, and then phileo, the third. Peter responds with phileo all three times. Some have wondered if there's some sort of deeper meaning in that, that somehow agape always means God's perfect love and phileo means some sort of lesser love. I don't think that's what's going on here. Peter or, Peter or John regularly uses synonyms. He uses two different synonyms for, he uses two different words for fish in this passage, two different words for sheep. He uses two different words uh, for love. We've seen that. There's several places where John uses these interchangeable words. So if you've heard that before, I don't think that's what the passage is teaching. Um, we could go into that in the Q&A if you want, of, of why I think that's the case. But I think it's just on its very surface level of, of Jesus inviting Peter to express his love for him and then Pete, and Jesus recalling, restoring um, Peter. Look at verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and when you walk... You and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, perhaps crucifixion, stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, literally fasten a belt to you, perhaps being belted to a cross, maybe, carry you where you do not want to go. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is your destiny, Peter. All of your worst nightmares are going to come true. Now follow me. You don't get to be in charge anymore, Peter. You're going to go where you don't want to go. The thing that terrified strong Peter the most was the fact that he might be crucified with Jesus. Your worst nightmare is going to come true. Now follow me. As tender as Jesus was the moment before, as clear as he is here, right? You must surrender control of how your life is going to go. You used to dress yourself. Those days are over, friend. You follow me. This is not easy, cuddly Jesus. Oh, you feel sorry. It's okay. He does the tender work, but then he also does this like, all right, here we go. You must follow me. Peter is as good as done. That's what the truly, truly in verse 18 means. This means this is as good as done. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is as true as anything could be true. You will lose all ability and authority to determine the, your own course of life, your worst nightmare, the thing that most shook you into denying me, that's coming. You will die by crucifixion against your will and you won't be able to get out of it. These are the terms. 
You are forgiven. You are restored. Now you have to follow me. You in? Verses 20 and 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple. You can kind of feel kind of the tension in this moment of going. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So maybe they're walking down the beach at this point and John's kind of catching up. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Peter said to him, he said to, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? He's not going to get a better assignment than me, is he? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So, the saying spread among the brothers that, his, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So there, John takes a little editorial moment there to go. We know this legend has floated out that because Jesus said this, that that means that John's not going to die. That was not Jesus' point. Jesus' point was, my assignment for John is different than my assignment for Peter, and neither of them can issue any complaint. I'm the king. I am the king. And I decide what assignment is best for you. Right? Peter still has this comparison and fairness hang up. He's kind of been in this rivalry with James and John, like their whole following Jesus, and it still pops up in his heart even in this moment. He's not going to have it better than me, is he? Jesus comes back strong. If John never has a painful event in the rest of his whole life and you have nothing but painful moments in the rest of your life, what is that to you? You don't follow me as long as it works out better for, better for you than him. You, you, that's not how this works. You don't follow me as long as it works out the way you want it to work out. And you, you just follow me and that's it. Jesus has zero tolerance for a spiritual hierarchy, rivalry, or comparison. Zero tolerance for Christians comparing themselves to one another and then complaining to God about it. He has zero tolerance for that. He has zero tolerance for us comparing our church to another church or our pastor to another pastor or our, 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 the blessings we received versus the blessings of someone else. Jesus says, like, you follow me. You renounced your ability to control your life. You signed up for crucifixion. Anything less of that, you should be grateful for, right? So this, while this is a tender chapter, it's also an intense chapter. And again, apparently this story had floated around that John feels like he needs to speak to, that no, I'm not going to live forever. <laughs> I'm not going to be living forever. I will die at some point. Jesus was making a hyperbolic point here. So the sin of rivalry and ranking and comparison, the sin of thinking that we can somehow measure spiritual power by physical blessings, that somehow the fact that you've had an easier life means that somehow Jesus loves you more, Jesus is obliterating that. No, not at all. We're not playing that game. It's rejected by Jesus and by John right here. So let's stop the comparison. That's what Jesus is trying to kill in Peter right here. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. So now he kind of he steps back a little bit. In a sense, the narrative is kind of done, and now he's sort of, he's sort of laying out kind of his second conclusion now. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. I was there, John is saying. And we know that his testimony is true. 
not just him, but other people can corroborate the fact that the details John is sharing is right. John's not just speaking his own kind of legendary story about Jesus. He's like, no, I've got verified witnesses. There's a we here that can verify my testimony. And now there are many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I feel like this is John kind of saying, okay, I, I, I closed my book in chapter 20. I decided to go ahead and, and add one more chapter addressing these questions, kind of filling out the story, but now I'm done. <laughs> you know, I could, there's always going to be more questions about Jesus. And if we were to try to answer all those questions, the world itself would not be able to contain the books. But this book is done. This book is complete. Ecclesiastes 12.12 says, of the making of many books, there is no end, (laughs) right? So this idea, I think John is saying here, all right, I'm done. The gospel's done. I added this kind of extra chapter to try to fill out the story, to connect the dots from Jesus's, or Peter's denial to now him being an apostle now, and he's a legit apostle because Jesus pulled him back in. So listen to him. Don't write off Peter because he made some mistakes. Jesus restored him. And so now he is legitimate. Don't pit John against Peter. There was a little bit of that going on in the early church where you would pick which apostle you liked better. Well, Peter denied Jesus, so I'm not listening to him, but John might live forever. I follow John, not Peter. And John's like, nope, we are not doing that. We saw that in 1 Corinthians where I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow... No, no, God hates that. And so there is no rivalry between Peter and John. They have different assignments from the Lord, but they're both legitimate. They're both legitimate followers of Jesus, legitimate spiritual um, um, gospel witnesses, um, evangel- um, eyewitnesses of Jesus. So now let's quickly turn to, um, let's interpret this a bit. In verses 1 through 14, we see that Jesus pursues failures with his kindness. Don't you see that? How does Jesus restore failures? He pursues the failures with kindness notice that he didn't come in raging against peter he didn't come on a chariot with lightning he came as a shadowy figure on the beach saying hey children try the other side of the boat and come have breakfast do they deserve that deserve that at all jesus pursues the failures with his kindness romans tells us that it's the kindness of the lord that leads us to repentance Notice that Jesus always takes the initiative. He goes, he calls, he instructs, he blesses, he prepares, he cooks, he invites, he feeds, and he speaks. Who's taking the initiative in this passage? Jesus is. Jesus goes to the failures. Peter doesn't have to do any sort of penance. Peter doesn't have to try to chase down Jesus. Jesus goes to Peter. Jesus pursues failures, and he does so from a posture of kindness. He blesses their simple obedience. They put their nets over the other side and he blesses these simple acts of obedience to Jesus are blessed by him. Jesus serves them, feeds them, communes with them. Notice that grace precedes the law. Like he's going to challenge Peter in his sin, but he, he leads with kindness first. It's grace and then law. Jesus extends kindness and then challenges Peter. And that's what we see in the Bible all the time. That's what happens with Abram or Adam. Adam is created, he's given the whole world, and then given a command to be fruitful and multiply and not eat the fruit. Notice it with, with Abraham, 
God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's time to move to a new land. And then later says, and circumcise your family. Right? The Exodus. God delivers his people out of Egypt and then gives them the law. Christ himself comes and heals people and then says, go and sin no more. Right? We have, these, we have this pattern of this temporal kindness, this temporal common grace. Then... Someone is shown and exposed, their sin is exposed, and then the eternal saving grace comes, right? I think we as Christians ought to have that same demeanor, that we lead with kindness, we're willing to speak the truth, and then, and then see God's saving grace come in. Common grace, law, and then saving grace. I think that's the pattern that we see in Jesus, and Jesus pursues failures with his kindness. In 15 through 19, Jesus transforms failures with his words. So Jesus leads with kindness, and then with his word, he confronts. Do you love me? Peter has to do the hard work of going, Peter, Peter, do you love me? It's not, hey, Peter, did you betray me? Did you do the bad thing? It's like, Peter, do you love me? Bad, do you love me? And then he, through his word, calls him to repentance. Feed my sheep, change direction. Go from fishing for fish. Go for looking out for yourself and start spending yourself in a life serving my sheep. And, he said, and then he restores him. He calls him again, follow me. And he commissions him. At, his first, at the first fishing event, he called him to follow him. First one he says, you're not just going to fish for fish, you're going to fish for people. And now you're going to be a shepherd. You're going to be a fisherman and you're going to be a shepherd. You're going to catch men and then you're going to care for them is Peter's calling. And then in verses 19 through 23, Jesus commands failures to follow him, right? Pursues failures with kindness, transforms them by his word, and then commands them to follow him. Flowing from a love for him, Jesus wants the heart. And once he has the heart, he has everything else. And he calls him to follow him for the welfare of the church. Feed and tend the church. Feed, tend, feed are the, are the words that are used there. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my flock. And here's kind of the principle here is that you've received grace from me, Peter. You've received a meal from me. You feed others. You, you see that all throughout scripture that you have an obligation to give it. Father, you have all these, these uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who've trespassed against us. The only proof that you've received the grace that we can see in a worldly sense is, is if you're giving it to others. One of the ways you can tell someone's been forgiven is they give forgiveness away. Someone has received mercy, they give mercy. People here, if Peter, if you have received mercy from me, you have, to, you have to give mercy to others. If you've come to me and you've eaten, then you've also got to feed others. Peter, you've eaten, now feed. Peter, you've been tended to, now you tend. Peter, you've been loved, now you love. Again, Jesus taking the initiative and then wanting to work through Peter to others. Peter's job is to feed the sheep. Christ's job is to build the church. Notice that? If 
you were to put that together with Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says that to Peter. Peter, it's not your job to build the church. It's your job to feed the sheep. I will build the church. And that's true for us. It is not our job to build the church. It's our job to care for one another and bear witness to the Savior and God will build his church. As a pastor, it's not for me to have this big, massive vision of how we can build this awesome organization. It's to feed you with the word, and Christ will build the church. Peter, feed my sheep, feed my flock. Unto, Jesus commands failures to follow him, flowing from a love from him, for the welfare of the church, unto brutal death. You will not get to do the things you want to do. You won't get to go where you want to go. Your worst fears will come true. You are already as good as dead. So what have you got to lose, Peter? You might as well follow me, right? You've already, you're already dead. Follow me. And Jesus commands failures to follow him without comparison. Jesus has a zero tolerance policy on rivalry in the church. Jesus has no interest in a human standard of fairness. So do you see the magnificence of this passage? It's so tender and sweet and yet so epic and large. Like we're brought into something huge. And it's going to go against our sinful nature to want to compare, to want to make things our own way. This is true of Peter. And I think that this also extends, if you read Peter's letter, 1 Peter 5, particularly about shepherds, about pastors, they're to lead in this way. But I think it's true of all of us Christians. That if we're going to follow Jesus, we follow him. And we do so by loving the church, by loving him, unto brutal death and without comparing ourselves with others, without playing the ranking game, just simply following Jesus. So here's the bottom line. We all were and are failures, are we not? Have we not all failed Jesus? I think I prayed earlier, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone Jesus's or God's, right? So I think we all can relate to this passage that we all were and are failures. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus still specializes in restoring failures. He went to the cross for failures. We could back up. He came to earth for failures. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The most mind-blowing miracle of all of how infinite deity could take on humanity. And then he lived a life without failure, without sin, utterly perfect before God and then willingly surrendered that to take on your sin, your failure on the cross so that it could be removed from you and the just wrath of God could be diverted away from you to him. Not only that, he is giving you his righteousness. That's what's happening on the cross is there is an exchange that is being offered on the cross and is received by repentance, repentance and faith that he will take all of your failure and sin on himself and will bury it in the ground and raise to life victorious. And he will give you his perfection before God, his righteousness. He came to earth for failures. And those who will admit their failures before God are eligible for his reconciliation by trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. And just like Peter, he initiates the call. He is extending a kindness to you today. 
to come to him and eat with him. He's going to penetrate your heart with his word and expose the sin and ask you, draw you into a love relationship with himself. And then he is going to act like the king he is and determine your destiny. And you just get the joy of walking it out. That's the call that we have here. We are all, we all were and are failures, but Jesus is specializes, still specializing in restoring failures. He's still meeting people on the shore of Galilee, calling them to himself, calling them to commune with him. And Jesus still uses restored failures like you and me and Peter to fish for men and feed sheep. What a glorious privilege that when he calls us, he doesn't call us to just kind of sit around. He calls us to participate. We can offer our fish to the meal too. We get to fish for men. We get to feed sheep. We get to be the ones who articulate the words of Christ of invitation and restoration to fellow failures. One guy talks about a survey that was taken some years ago. Several thousand Americans were asked, what, they were asked this question, what did they most want to hear from other people? What are the words you most want to hear? And the number one answer is, I love you. The number one answer that people gave was, I love you. What do you most want to hear from another human being is, I love you. The second highest answer, highest ranking answer was, I forgive you. And the third was, supper's ready. (laughs) Do, Do you feel that here? Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, I love you. I forgive you. And supper's ready breakfast actually and that is what our soul most craves and we don't just hear it from a human being we hear it from God himself through Christ I love you with those nail scarred hands preparing the fish what would that have been like to see the love of Jesus in front of you preparing your meal and you're the one that betrayed him what kindness Peter do you love me So God himself in Christ is saying to humanity, is saying to you and me, I love you, I forgive you, and supper's ready. Come dine with me. Let me feed you. Take my words, let them search your heart. Take my hard words, take the comforting words, put them all together. Let me lead you, let me love you, let me forgive you, let me feed you. And now, that's our calling. That's our calling as Christians. That was Peter's calling. Is to love people. Tell them and show them. Show them by your forgiveness what God's forgiveness is like and then offer them God's forgiveness. And tell people that supper's ready. They can come into communion with God and show them what that looks like by our hospitality, our love, our forgiveness, our supper, our dinner table is an invitation, a, a, a mild invitation to draw people into the great banquet, the great feast, the great fellowship of God himself. The only way the world will know we are Jesus' disciples is if we give away what we've received. We've been loved by God, forgiven by God, and are invited into his table. And now, we, I think, share in that basic calling of Peter to feed the sheep, fish for people, draw them in, let them know we love them, let them be people of forgiveness, Invite them to commune with us. And in that, give them a picture of what God is inviting them into. Does that make sense? 
What a sweet passage. I love this passage. It's so helpful to me. What's true of Peter, it's true of pastors, it's true of everyone that follows Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this passage and uh, even as we walk through it now, Lord, I pray that you would be stirring hearts, that we would in some sense see ourselves on that rocky beach with the waves lapping on the shore and we would hear the voice of our Savior calling us. Not in rage and anger, but in kindness and invitation to come to him to hear him say to us that he loves us, that he forgives us, and that he wants to commune with us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that is far from Christ, who has not believed in the gospel, that, that now, right now, they would, they would hear and they would be drawn to him, or at least drawn in to explore a little more. Lord, this is what our hearts crave, and we thank you that what our hearts most crave, you offer us in Jesus. And Lord, I pray those of us who have received this would see that it is part of our obligation and joy to extend that same love and forgiveness and mercy and provision to others. May the gospel make sense to people because they see what it does to us. They see something different in us. So God, we thank you for this story and we pray that you would help us to walk um, in light of what it teaches us. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll stand with us. We have one more song.
You can be seated for just a moment. We will take a couple moments for some questions if there are any. Justin usually has one or two maybe. And then we'll open it up for anyone that wants to ask a question. Uh, the spirit of this is just for us to, to, to interact with God's Word. James tells us to not just be hearers of the Word, but do, doers only. And sometimes we have some questions about that. And so we want to give you an opportunity if anything was unclear in the message or something that you want to see fleshed out a little bit. Uh, this is an opportunity to do that. So, my, I'll ask one question and then I'll open it up. Uh, I guess my question is here we're at the end of John and I guess I'd be interested to know what sort of has been the impact of studying John. Like what's one thing that really is kind of lodged in your own heart, mind, or life? Um, I've taught through John before, um, but every time I go through it, it's you really are with Jesus in in the Gospel of John and he really does think he's God. Like he really does think that and proves that. And so, um, yeah, so I'm just kind of always amazed that, um, that Jesus is God and, um, and reveals to us what the heart of God is like. What makes him mad, what makes him happy, what breaks his heart, what causes him to cry. And realize that that is what God is like. Uh, the things he mourns about, the things that he gets frustrated by, um, so um, that is what God is like. And so anyway, so just a simple off-the-cuff answer. I have many, but. Any questions about the passage? Yeah. Bob? Is there any Luke 5 with uh, John 21 here when the net Should I ask a question for the... Yeah, yeah, because we actually have a live stream. Yeah, we have a live stream. This yeah. week. So the question is, in, in Luke 5, the nets start to break, but here in John 21, the nets don't break. Is there a parallel potentially to our eternal security in, in these passages? I don't know. I mean, I, it's not clear there, so I want to be careful not to speculate what Scripture itself doesn't clearly say. I wonder if it has more to do with Peter. If Peter will be more... If it's more like Peter's the net in that the drawing in a fish, he's going to fail. But now in the second, he is going to bring in more fish, but he's not going to break. You know what I mean? So I wonder if it has more to do with Peter's own, like Peter's not going to fall away again, and he is going to bring in many large fish. So maybe it's Representative Peter, but, but we don't know that for sure, and I think we want to be careful. Does but. that mean like operating in the flesh versus operating in the spirit? Could be, could be, Yeah. It's hard to say because, you know, and that's, I think, John has been so allegorized so much that I'm hesitant to try to go too far beyond that because some have gone, well, there was two boats and they were starting to sink, so maybe that relates to there's only one boat here and, and I, don't, I don't know, I'm just, I want to be careful not to over-allegorize it. So possibly, but the scripture hasn't, I mean, the passage itself doesn't necessarily make, draw that line, but. It's possible. It's possible that there's some symbolism there. What you're saying is certainly true. <laughs> Whether that's meant to be a symbol of that or not, uh, it's hard for me to say. Maybe. Everybody loves a good maybe answer. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. 
So the question is, um, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these, who are the these? Right. And what is the comparison? So there's, I think, two main interpretive possibilities. One is, do you love me more than fishing these fish, the nets, you know, worldly success? You know, are you willing to leave that and follow me? Do you love me more than you love what you know to do? The other is, do you love me more than these disciples? And I think it's striking very much at the heart of Peter saying, even though they all will deny you, I will never deny you. I think it's a little bit like, well, how'd that work out, Peter? I mean, do you, do you want to do that? And Peter very humbly goes, you know, he's not, he's not willing to, to go there again. So I, I think it has more to do with his claim to be a superior disciple than these and going, so I think, I think Peter's definitely kind of confronting him on that. And then Peter certainly is a little more humble, although he does, it does pop up a little bit in his comparison with John, but I think that's where it's at is the, <laughs> he's comparing that to his bold claim before the crucifixion of being, um, being kind of a, the perfect disciple. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, Kathy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what's with the 153? Like, is it a normal thing for them to be counting fish? I would assume so, that if you're a fisherman and you're going to sell these fish, it's nice to know what kind of day you had, you know. I think that the number so stuck in his head because he's used to, like, well, how did we do? How did we do today? You know, if you're, if you're in this fishing industry, you know. Um, so I think it, it's in his nature to want to know how that went. And I think the number so stuck in his head because it's such an absurd number. Mm-hmm. Like, I have never seen a day like that. And mm-hmm. the fact that he makes the point, the net didn't break. Mm-hmm. Like, that's impossible. Like, yeah. this, is, this is a ton of fish. And that net should have broken. There's no way we should have caught that many. We should have caught at least one in the hours preceding and then to just instantaneously yeah. have. And so I think it's meant to point to the power of the miracle. Mm-hmm. And John, being a vocational fisherman, would happen to be the kind of guy that knows that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's like asking my dad when he plums the Arby's, how many uh, feet of pipe are in there? He probably has a pretty good guess, actually, because that's what he does. Right. You know, so I'm putting him on the spot. But I'm just trying to say, like, in your vocation, that would be the kind of thing you'd probably know. So I think it points to the fact that John actually probably did write it because that would be the kind of thing a fisherman would notice, Mm -hmm. you know, and really find compelling. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, that's kind of my thoughts there. Yeah. So. Yes. Oh, well, we got. I don't know. In which verse? Yeah. Um, the, two, two other, the two other disciples. Oh, when it's listing who goes fishing. Yeah. Do you have an answer to that? You know? uh, I don't have an answer necessarily to why there's two others that are mentioned here. Maybe they weren't of the 12 is possibly it. But one of the things there's actually... Um, They've noted that if you read through the different Gospels, sometimes it says just a random person here plus someone and they name people. Like, so it's kind of like, why do they name some people and leave some people unnamed in general? And what we, we think 
is that actually the people that get named are alive and it's sort of like a footnote. If you want to verify the story, here's the person you can go talk to because in the Christian community, they would have known a bunch of these people. So the end of Luke, for example, in chapter 24, you get that there's Cleopas is one of the people on the road to Emmaus, but we don't know the name of the other person. And the thought is, it's because Cleopas is still alive and you can go talk to him about the story, but the other guy, he's gone now, so doesn't matter. Doesn't matter quite as much. Some people think that it's Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I don't think it's like just a different guy. Um, so they do eventually recognize him, but there is some continuity from his, his, his old non-glorified body to his new glorified body mm-hmm. that is both the same and yet different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be probably true of us. And that's true of like, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. We don't spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity in real bodies on the earth. Mm-hmm. This place the globe is going to be remade and who knows, maybe you'll live in the rapid city version of the new heavens and the new earth and what will make it through, what will look the same, what won't. Mm-hmm. Jesus has asked that question about marriage. Marriage is one of those things that is not in the new heavens and the new earth, um, but other things are, you know, so yeah. yeah, I think it definitely points a little bit to that. Some things are continuous into the new heavens and the new earth and to glorified mm-hmm. bodies and some things aren't and it seems like, yeah, their recognition of things is, is a little mm-hmm. off kilter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not used to yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Like, that was it. Yeah. Cool. Well, we typically try to end the service around noon, so we're just a little ahead of schedule there. If you want to please stand, this will be our benediction. So what we'll do is next week, I'm going to preach a sermon on the whole book of, the, of John next week, just a kind of a capstone summary of the entire book. So we hope that you'll come back next week. And then we're going to do through the, through the month of January, kind of a thematic series about church. So it's going to be kind of a vision identity of Redeeming Grace Church. Two weeks is our one year anniversary, our birthday, I guess you could call it. So we made it through 2020, easiest first year ever. And we're glad that you're a part of it. The fact that there are so many of you here today is such an encouragement through what has not always looked like a fun first year of church, but it has been. And then in in February, we're going to jump into the book of Genesis, actually. And so we'll get into Genesis and all of the fun stuff that's there. So John 3, 16 and 17. This is our benediction as we've kind of closed the book. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's really at the heart of the Gospel of John, at the heart of the Bible, and uh, it is offered to you today. So make sure you connect with some people on your way out. Make sure you make a new friend. Greet somebody. Let them know you're glad they're here. Pray for somebody, and you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.